Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. So glad you're with us today on Palm Sunday. So when people say Palm Sunday, they're describing historically the things that took place on the, the week of Christ's passion, the, the week in which he died for our sins. And, and the tradition that we're given through the Gospels gives us quite a bit of information about what took place on the lead up to the cross. As the Gospels make it clear, that cross moment, what Jesus came to do and then to to suffer in Jerusalem was a main point of each of those Gospels. We get a lot of information about it. And so as we know, Easter celebrates Christ's rising from the grave. You can work your way backward and get to not just Passover and the, the actual crucifixion, but you get through the Holy Week all these different things that happen to Jesus and kind of around Jesus. It's all very important. We don't want to minimize any of it. And yet... The meaning of the whole of the week is really what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. So Palm Sunday, tip of the cap, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 today. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to finish this series on the church by thinking about the thing that brings it all together. The book of 1 Corinthians, in my mind, has been very beneficial for us. It's a book that has a lot of hard things in it. There's a lot of sin that's being confronted, but it's also a book that's got some really um, elevated moments. This is a, a book that gets read at every Christian wedding, pretty much, with 1 Corinthians 13. And it's a book that gets read at almost every Christian funeral with 1 Corinthians 15. It's a book that brings together uh, God's people in a very interesting way, taking this church that had broken itself apart over sin and pride and brought them back together, and there's all kinds of stuff that happens between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians by the end of it, but brings this church back together around a single perfect foundation, not through Paul's just force of personality or charisma, but hammering these people back together around the love that God's given us through Christ. And that's what he says, and he, he puts it together in this really beautiful way in such that he ends. So 1 Corinthians 15, the very last verse says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I don't know if you just read that with me, but if that's a promise that Paul is making to the crazy Corinthians... And we have the access through Christ to that same gospel, then it's possible that this is a promise for us as well. And if it is, look at what he's actually promising that we would become steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I want that. I don't know if you feel like you have that or such a thing might be possible in Christianity, that you might actually become steadfast, faithful. That word has so much import as you think about through the Old Testament, God describing his love for his people and his love through the covenant that he made with his people. It's all wrapped up in that word that they use, steadfast. And it's so helpful that the ESV uses that word, even though we don't use it in English a lot. It jumps out at you. When you read through the Old Testament, and you read through the Psalms especially, when that word jumps out, it jumps out in a way that connects in your head if you're um, 
by God's grace, been able to spend some time in the Scriptures, you'll start to see that this is what he has been doing. This is a covenant that he has been bringing about from the promise in Genesis 3 all the way through to Revelation. That his, his love, that his faithful love becomes a love that you're able to express in a faithful way. And you're not just here today and gone tomorrow. You become immovable, strong, dependable. I want to be dependable. I, I, I want to talk to people about Jesus and know that I, I will still be a Christian in two years. I, I want to lead my family and, and have this confidence for my kids that like my marriage may still exist in two years. I want to be able to, to say things that are true about the gospel and continue to believe them. How, how do you become steadfast? How do you become immovable? Deconstructing the faith is something that has become something um, discussed more and more publicly, and I'm so thankful for it. I mean, it's happening all the time with cultural Christianity, but now it's got a label, and so we can try to respond and make the, the case for how one might be steadfast and immovable. And not only that, that you might actually abound in the work that God's given. That's describing this thing that's, that's flowing and multiplying and growing, that it's happening lots and lots. Uh, do you feel excited to do the work that God calls you to? Or does it feel like a task? Does it feel like an obligation? The things that you might do here, sure, but the things that you might be called to do when it comes to reconciling with somebody... When it comes to sharing the gospel with somebody, when it comes to fighting sin in your life and stopping something that you know God hates or starting something that God has commanded, does it feel exciting? Maybe for a minute, but how does it continue to feel exciting? How do you abound in these good works? Well, he's, he's hidden something in these verses that therefore has all kinds of stuff that we need. And, and I want you to get it. I want you to find it. And it's the last verse of the chapter because the whole rest of the chapter is building the concepts that are going to give us what it is to actually be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, having hope, hope church. This is what we want. Okay, so how do we get what these, these different categories that he's talking about, how do we receive these blessings and become these kinds of people? Well, you have to understand what's going on through the rest of this chapter. If you understand what's going on through the rest of this chapter, my, my contention is, and I think this is what Paul is doing as he is building these different arguments, is that you will no longer become discouraged. You will not be defeated by God's grace. And I think this might be our biggest danger. You won't become distracted. Discouraged, defeated, or distracted. That you will be this always working, always overflowing, energetic, Duracell rabbit, pushing forward. All right, here we go. How do we get this, uh, this grace? How do we not become discouraged? Well, first, you remember the gospel. That's where he says, he starts in verse 3, and Paul says, I delivered you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. He's grounding what's happening in what God has done and talked about throughout all time. But he's describing God's rescue plan for us. And lest we forget just how beautiful this is, take a moment to remember that God the King, Christ the immortal, the one who is before all, the God who created, the logos, the ends, the philosophical first and ultimate, the King, died. 
You don't get it. I don't get it. Take a minute. The unkillable, the author of life, died for your sins. Out of love for you, he died. Paul's taking you back to ABCs. He's taking you back to the very first thing that you might learn about Christianity. But I hope that you take a moment to just understand, to go a little deeper with this. If this doesn't touch your heart, can I tell you, I I think it may mean this morning that you've already given in to a great deal of this discouragement and distraction and defeat. If If you don't feel this, this is the only medicine that you really need this morning. So dig into it. He's saying that God died for our sins, that he was buried, dead, dead, for our sins, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that's what he's going to focus on for the rest of this chapter, and it's such a beautiful lead-in for us as we think about Easter. But I I, I hope that you can start to access the, the goodness of God for you. It's not just a category. You know, we talk about this stuff and it sounds so like um, rational and it sounds so like kind of technical because we use these words that you don't use anywhere else. But when the kids stood up here and they quoted to you from Romans, they're not just quoting some sort of salvation formula, say these words and God forgives you. They're describing the rescue of a God, a father who loves you. It's every bit as beautiful and emotionally compelling as any rescue movie you've ever seen, as any damsel in distress that's ever been saved, as any, as any of these compelling emotional stories that grab you, as the things that have maybe happened in your life when somebody stood up for you, when somebody's been there for you, when somebody's taken the heat for you. That's how it's always described in Scripture. Look at the, so you think about these, the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. You think about this kind of dry stuff, or you think about these word pictures that are hard to access, or you think about them preaching judgment of God. But look at them, listen how to Micah ends his prophecy. He says in Micah 7, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity? Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Where do we become steadfast? How do we become steadfast? Maybe it's a family trait. Maybe it's like my poor children that have my terrible accent now. You know, you try to like restrict it and that just makes it worse other places. And so they, I don't know, hopefully they don't sound too idiotic when they're around their friends at school. But that accent is also my accent. It's their dad's accent. There's something about it that for them is going to mean home. Think about like, uh, you know, some sort of specific food that's your, your family's dish. Bean and ham bone soup. I don't know that anybody else likes bean and ham bone soup, but it is my favorite meal with some chow chow on top and raw onions. That bean and ham bone soup means love to me. Not to you, not to my poor family after I eat bean soup. <laughs> But to me, it's love because it's our dish. My mother makes it. When he's talking about steadfast love and then you becoming steadfast like he is, he's describing a family trait. 
That's who he is. And as he adopts you into his family and through his love, he begins to show you who he is. You begin to change degree by degree to take on something of who he is. Not his glory as though you steal it, but his glory as you reflect it. Steadfast love. And then verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. What is that word? That's not a technical word. That's a love word. He's going to tread on our iniquities underfoot. You will cast out our sin into the depths of the sea. He's a conqueror out of love for you. That's the gospel. You've got to start there. You've got to be transformed by this. This is what I need to hear. You're going to bump into me in the hallway. You're going to see me through the week. That's what I need you to tell me. I need to hear this over and over and over again, to be reminded, to be shaken out of our world, to remember the gospel truth that he has made a way for our iniquity, our transgression, our sin against him, our rebellion, to be taken away. That gospel truth is what is going to root his people into this kind of steadfast and immovable, hopeful, abounding in good works. And then he goes further and he... he, puts it into a resurrection fact. Listen, if we're going to actually fight discouragement, we have to have something that works rationally, not just emotionally. The gospel works emotionally as you start to access it, and rationally. But the place at which it sort of interacts with history most fully is at the resurrection. At the resurrection, this is how he describes it, verse 5. Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised, verse 5, and Jesus appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, he begins to abound. I worked harder than any of them. No, it wasn't I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Christianity is built on a fact. A fact. This is not just compelling. It's not just fun. It's not just historic. It's not just pretty. This is true. And here's how we know it's true. This Jesus guy lived and he taught. He went around preaching. He was a preacher and he preached the fact that he was God. He told everybody that he could forgive sins. Then he showed them. He didn't just proclaim that he would forgive sins. He would then heal the guy that was also a sinner. He would do these miracles that would show people the light and the life that he had come to bring. These miraculous healings, these miraculous food multiplications that he could bring peace to seas and souls with the word. And then he dies What would any of that matter if he stayed dead? See, Jesus did resurrections, widow of Nain. She's walking in this funeral procession with her son, who is dead on a funeral bier. And as they're bringing him along, Jesus stops the procession and raises the guy from the dead. He goes to to see the family of Lazarus, and they're all weeping because he's been dead for days to the point that he's going to stink. And Jesus rises, he raises Lazarus up from the dead. Incredible miracle 
totally changes everything, right? Not if he stays dead. If he stays dead, Lazarus rising from the dead is great for Lazarus for a minute, you know, and then prostate cancer, you know, whatever. Like, then he gets older, and then he dies again. Poor guy. If Jesus stays dead, then all of those things are interesting, but they're not meaningful to you and to me. But if he raises from the dead, if he leaves the grave, if he is still alive, then he puts the stamp of authenticity on everything that he did. It actually does have meaning because it actually can deliver you from death. Then uh, uh, Paul goes to a great extent to try and prove this thing. Because again, it only matters if it's true, and it's only true to you if you can believe it. What is the evidential train that you can follow to believe the fact that the resurrection took place? Well, there's a hundred great, beautiful, wonderful um, resources that are out there on the resurrection. My experience has been that when I start giving you a lot of information about how you can believe the resurrection, you smile and your eyes just glaze over, (laughs) which is totally fine. I'm okay with that. It doesn't hurt me personally, Uh, but we're not going to waste our time. Please go read that stuff. What Paul highlights here is very factual. He highlights the fact that Peter, who followed Jesus for years in and out of doors through miracles, transfiguration, and betrayal, knew Jesus and saw him after the resurrection. I don't know who would, would be able to like fake Peter out and pretend to be Jesus. Peter knew Jesus. And so when he saw this person raised from the dead, he knew that the Jesus that was on the cross, stabbed by a spear, water and blood came out, was the Jesus who went into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and the Jesus that is now standing before him alive, eating fish and talking. He says also that he appeared to James. Now, there's a couple Jameses in Scripture, but this James is actually Jesus' half-brother, the future children of Joseph and Mary. Jesus, very special case, born through Mary. But Mary and Joseph are married. They have other children. And one of them is this guy, James, who writes the book of James later in the New Testament. Do you want to know who knows who Jesus is? Probably his brother. I've got two. They can spot me in a lineup. They can tell what I look like. James knew who Christ was. These men who knew him as Lord and brother could identify that this was the Jesus that they had saw dead. And it's not just these guys that are on the inside and maybe part of some sort of conspiracy. He appeared at some point to over 500 people at one time. No hallucination, no delusion, no um, sort of weird sort of mental landscape from Peter or James of hope or hate that, that made them think he had raised from the dead. 500 people at one time who, Paul says, the Corinthians can go and talk to again if they wanted to as if they needed something more than the word of Paul himself, whom they loved and believed, and who also saw the risen Christ. There's facts here. There's things that you can put yourself into and realize you can actually prove this thing. It's not some sort of oral tradition that builds up over generations. It's not, this is not a lie that they believed was a lie and then died for. The apostles died for what they said happened to Jesus. If they had all gotten together and stolen Jesus' body and told everybody that he actually was raised from the dead, they would be dying for something they knew to be a lie. Just process that. We talked about it regularly, but you don't get martyred for money. You don't do something that will kill you in order to gain something that you can only use 
when you're alive. No, there's, there's a fact here. And this resurrection fact established that gospel truth that he says at the end of the book, or at the end of the chapter, right before chapter, verse 58, he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That gospel fact will stop you from discouragement. That gospel fact is what we're going to bathe ourselves in in this next series. The idea that he is there for you and that you do need him. I I, I ping pong back between both of those lies. That I don't need him or that he wouldn't take me. What we're going to study is going to show how the gospel proves both of those things wrong. This gospel track, it's going to break down your discouragement in order to keep you moving. You're not going to be discouraged anymore, nor will we ever be defeated. This is a big piece of 1 Corinthians 15. He shows how Christ wins. If Jesus had stayed dead, we're done for. But Jesus rises from the grave. And if you can't kill somebody, now you've really got a problem. You know, Dracula is hard to kill. You ever have a vampire around? No, but, you know, in stories they do. And they're very difficult to kill. That's a huge problem. Well, what if he can't be killed? How do you beat an enemy that doesn't go away? This is what we're saying is Jesus. Not only is he God over everything and king over all, sustaining all of the universe with the word of his power, he also doesn't go away. You can't beat him because he can't be killed. This is what it says in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied because we're spending our life like crazy for the life to come. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If he has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if he has been raised, and in fact he has, we are of all people most to be envied. I think it was David Platt that made that point. I love that contrast. Of course that's what's true. Sometimes we think of the resurrection as just this argument. We're going to use it in apologetics to prove Christianity's historical reliability. Yeah, sure, it's not less than that, but it's definitely more than that. If you actually do believe this resurrection, it means that you actually do have Jesus now. This isn't just something that he did for you once upon a time. It means that he's alive now, having done this for you, interested in loving you right now, really. How can we fall into this discouragement if Jesus is not only alive, but making us alive too? He says in verse 24, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, because he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What's he describing? He's talking about how Jesus is marching forward and bringing this kingdom about. This kingdom that is necessary to go about kind of slowly. You know, if Jesus had ended this 100 years ago, we may not be... Some of you might have been here. I don't know how old some of you are. But 100 years ago, most of us wouldn't be here. I'm thankful that he's taken his time with it. Now, you know, I'm kind of ready. But, uh, but me being born was a good thing for me. I'm glad that he took his time with it. But as he is marching forward, what he's doing is destroying all of these enemies. And the last one that will be destroyed, the last one that he will destroy and bring us through is death. I I think you're going to see when you actually talk to people or you're honest with your own heart, 
that this is one of the pieces that is most difficult for us. Because you talk about Jesus and you say Savior and you say God love, but there's still death. There's still wickedness in the world. There's still enemies. There's still shootings. There's still things that shock us. We don't even blush as a culture anymore. And there's still evil that can shock us that is taking place regularly. How do we believe this This. Jesus is going to actually bring about this conclusion, that Jesus is actually going to find a way to defeat this thing that is so suffocatingly awful. Well, because he's already done it. He's already defeated death. And you say, well, yeah, he has, but we haven't. No, you don't understand Christianity. Christianity is not you do like Jesus and eventually succeed like Jesus. Christianity is Jesus did what he did and he won. And through the gospel, you can be united to him. He describes himself as our head. The head doesn't just float along on its own. He's bringing his body with him. He describes himself as our spouse. He doesn't just leave his bride behind. To know and be be united to him is to have this victory with him, to be raised with him. See, the Corinthians, they, they had started to really get defeated. And he's reminding them that they've already won the victory. And, and, and the last kind of thing, and, and again, I think this is where you and I are going to really get hit too, is that the Corinthians had, had really gotten distracted. They'd really allowed themselves to lose sight or lose confidence in this truth. They, they started to wobble on the resurrection and whether or not it happened. I'm glad they did because we get this beautiful chapter, but, but it's hard for them. And, and honestly, it, it's a bad example and, and hopefully one we don't follow. See, for the Corinthians, the intelligentsia of the day, the cultural elite of the day, were very confident that your physical was the worst part about you, that what you are as a body was what most needed to be superseded, that that if death had anything good about it, it was that it removed the body from you and freed you to move into this platonic ideal, this this version of the forms, this life without the necessity of uh, physical you know, brushing your teeth and boogers and, and who you are as you slowly decrepit, you know, whatever the verb is for that, and become, you know, ha, ah, what we are as we age. And so that they were getting to this place, the Corinthians were, the people that were already in the church were getting to this place where the culture had made them think, well, of course, that also must be true, that, of course, Jesus being raised is really more symbolic of how he can supersede the material and become something greater, that had begun to shake the Corinthians. And they, they asked these questions in this chapter. How can the dead be raised? Dead people don't get up. Oh, okay, dead people are raised. What kind of flesh are they raised with? What kind of body do they come in? That's not an honest question. If it was, Paul would have asked, answered it a little more nicely. Instead, in this chapter, they ask about what kind of flesh you're going to come in. And he goes, you foolish person. Ooh. <laughs> Hopefully it was nicer than that. No, they weren't asking a real question, so he comes at them hard. You foolish person, remember the gospel that we've already preached. God is able to take a seed and putting it in the ground, see something amazing come up out of it. Something nobody saw coming when all they saw was the seed. You see an apple seed without reference to an apple tree. It seems like a little rock. It seems dead. You put it in the ground, you walk away and come back. There's a plant. The plant becomes a tree. The tree provides these apples. He's describing what takes place. Of course, this is what happened. You put it down in the ground and up comes something totally new and different. God is able to take what seems dead and bring from it life. 
in great variety and with great beauty. He says then, he argues further, if you look around the world, you see that God has brought about, he's able to create an incredible variety of life on this planet. The fish are different from the animals, and the animals are different from us, and we are different from all of these beautiful plants. How is it beyond God's scope to do something new, to bring something fresh in the resurrection, something that we've only seen in the resurrected Jesus? How could they be so skeptical? Well, Paul puts his finger on it. It seems out of nowhere, and it seems like something your you know, maid aunt says to you. But she says in verse 33, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Don't hang out with the crazy kid? Yeah, got it. No. What is he saying? He is saying that if the people you think are cool don't believe in the gospel, you're going to find your own confidence in the gospel shaken and maybe eventually stolen. What he's describing is what we talk about as sociological epistemology. The idea that what you think is infected by who you like. You can love somebody and want them to change, but if you love somebody and you're impressed by what they think, whether or not it's reasonable, whether or not it's rational, you're going to want it to be true and actually start modeling your life as though it is. Just look at the stats. There's not argument that takes place in our world anymore. The whole argument is just appeal. Is this appealing? Would you want to be like the cool person who also thinks this? It's incredibly effective. It was happening in Corinth, and it's happening today. Watch yourselves, brothers and sisters. Maybe the fact that you're not steadfast and immovable is because you're not even sure that you want this to be true. Bad company corrupts good morals. They became distracted. The gospel became something that was a smaller and smaller percentage of their week while they went out and did the things that they really wanted, that they really enjoyed, that their hearts were really enlivened by. Who does that sound like? Do you have a mirror? What is that in your world? Is it possible that this used to be who you are and now it's part of who you are? Did it used to be that this brought tears to your eyes as you trusted in what God had done to forgive and save you and now, you know, we go. It's great for the kids. You know, they sing and, you know, heaven to earth, whatever. What? How did that happen? You know, you go stand in the ocean. There's no oceans anywhere near us, so maybe you've never been to one. But you just, once upon a time, we go to Florida, and you go to the ocean, and you stand in one spot, and you're just looking at the sun or whatever and thinking, and all of a sudden you look back, and you've moved. How? You're being influenced. It takes effort to stay still, <laughs> to continue to believe what God says is true, what He's proven to be true. And so... If you can wake up, if you can be shaken out, if you can remember what He has proven through Christ, then you can step away from that discouragement. You step away from that defeat. You're never becoming distracted. And you start to work hard with the hope that God's given you through Christ. That's why He says in verse 52, For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, well, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's what we celebrate. That's what Christianity is. 
If you actually believe that, do you have any idea of how affecting that's going to be? Of how your priorities are going to be so impacted by that? Of how that little ticket in your back pocket becomes a ticket, not just from, uh, you know, nothing to do on Easter to an Easter egg hunt. It becomes a ticket from perishable to imperishable. To singing with Christ, where O death is your victory, where O death is your sting. That's what we're going to celebrate right now. As a church, we sing it, we, we speak it, we pray it, we think it. And by God's grace, through Christ, we, we do this thing that shows it to us. Shows it to us with our eyes and makes us actually see and taste and smell it. See, we do baptism first. If, if you come to Christ, the first thing you need to do is be baptized. And you need to picture what it is to be planted like a seed in the ground and be raised up to new life. And if you've been baptized, if you've come to know Jesus, then we do this regular picture that Christ gave us in the Lord's Supper where we take some bread and some wine, remembering the body that was broken and the blood that was shed in order to ground us once more in the gospel that saves us. So, so what I want to do right now is I'm going to pray. When I say amen, the band's going to start to play, and I want you to take the time that it takes to ask yourself, if you believe this, if this is really you, if it's, it's become your identity through Jesus, if it has, if you've gone through that process, if you said yes, and it's time for you to take the Lord's Supper, I want you to prepare your heart for it. Yeah, it involves repentance, but it also involves belief. It, it doesn't just involve taking up sin and, and throwing it out before the Lord and saying you're sorry. It also involves celebration of what he's done for you in Jesus. When you're ready... You come and take the elements, sit back down, and then we'll take them all together uh, when the band stops playing. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are a people in desperate need of a gospel that will make us immovable, of a gospel that will make us, Father, abound, abound in good works, abound in hope, abound in a steadfast love of you so that our wayward heart doesn't continue to wander and leave the God that we love. Lord, would you make that gospel clear to us again today through your word, through the picture that you've given us in this Lord's Supper. Lord, bring people to yourself today. Don't just rally the troops. I pray that you would, but, but I also pray, Father, that you might bring someone to you for the first time today that they might say, yeah, I, I am a sinner and I, I am in need of that, that gospel story of God the King dying for me to bring me to himself. Lord, if, if somebody's processing that today, I pray that you give us the grace to walk with them through it. And yeah, Lord, for your people, please prepare our hearts to remember the goodness of your gospel that we might become steadfast, immovable, abounding in good work, hopeful of what you will bring to pass. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name.